Thank you, Alan, and it's great to be with you tonight on ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. If you're watching on a computer and haven't downloaded our app yet, go to the App Store, Google Play Store, or Apple TV, and search for ADH TV. You'll find all our content there, live and on demand, and it's free. Now, as the saying goes, the first generation makes money, the second generation maintains it, and the third generation blows it. It's usually a pretty accurate observation, but when it comes to the descendants of billionaire oil barons, the word blown acquires an entirely new meaning. This week it's been revealed that Aileen Getty, Rebecca Rockefeller Lambert, and Peter Gilcase are paying salaries for eco-thugs who disrupt our cities and ind industries to push their radical climate agenda. Yes, that's Aileen Getty, the granddaughter of oil baron J. Paul Getty, who became the richest man in the world after acquiring lucrative oil leases in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait in the late 1940s. This year, Aileen put a million dollars of her own cash into her California-based Climate Emergency Fund. The fund bankrolled the Just Stop Oil eco-zealots who, who glued themselves to priceless Leonardo da Vinci and John Constable paintings. It seems Aileen has been at it for a while. She's given $170,000 to Save Old Growth, a Canadian group that blocks roads used by loggers in British Columbia. And back in 2019, she donated $500,000 to Extinction Rebellion, the group who have glued themselves to major roads even here in Sydney and Brisbane. She claimed that disruption is needed for there to be action and said, quote, whether the resources I have come from oil or not, I feel an urgency and it's a privilege to give whatever resources you have. How oh, is it, Aileen? Your family's worth $5.4 billion. How about you fork out some money to the Congolese kids who are digging up cobalt for batteries and solar panels. Don't hold your breath waiting for her to do that. Meanwhile, heirs to the $8.4 billion Rockefeller oil fortune have been on a multi-decade, well-funded anti-fossil fuel campaign. In 2003, Neva Rockefeller co-sponded a resolution at ExxonMobil's annual shareholder meeting demanding the company study climate change's impact on its business. In fact, the Rockefellers have been so hell-bent on destroying the very industry that handed them their wealth, Exxon took the family to court in 2016, accusing them of funding a conspiracy against the company. Meanwhile, several family members created the Equation campaign and pledged a combined $30 million of their personal wealth. What does the Equation campaign do? Well, it supports green protests, including, including those against the Keystone pipeline that would have made America independent from Middle Eastern oil. But not everyone in the family is on board with all this greenwash idiocy. In 2018, David Kaiser, another great-great-grandchild, told New York Magazine, quote, if Exxon's stock price suffers, the whole family will lose money, unquote. And Ariana Rockefeller called the campaign by her relatives deeply misguided. She can say that again, but the question still remains, what's their angle? 
Are they hypocrites pretending to care so they can feel better about themselves and the wealth they've inherited? Or is something more sinister at play? Think about it. Here we have the cashed up descendants of the world's richest people bankrolling climate protesters that are disrupting entire cities to shut the coal and oil industries that keep the lights on. Meanwhile, they get to hobnob with the new elite in exclusive resorts far from where the disruptions and power shortages are making life difficult for everyone else. The more things change. Now, there's a strong link between identity politics and the left side of politics. You could walk the entire length of the Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras or canvas the students at an ethnic studies lecture at a major university and struggle to find anyone who doesn't vote green or, if they're not completely batty, Labor. It's a nice fit. The leftist parties happily endorse the redefinition of marriage or vilify Western civilization as colonial genocide and reap the electoral awards, rewards every few years. The Liberal Party doesn't go in for identity politics, partly because it stands mostly for individualism above such superficialities as sexuality and skin colour. But this doesn't mean the party should be so ambiguous about the identity of who it represents, or at least who it doesn't represent. You might have heard uh, South Australian Senator Alex Antich say on this show on Tuesday that the Liberal Party is often falsely portrayed as the party for big business. He's right. The Liberals have never represented the big end of town, and it has succeeded best whenever it has been explicit about its true founding purpose, which is to represent middle Australia, the hardworking, family-oriented people, not the elites, who it turns out are as fickle about their political proclivities as they are about remembering to tick the carbon offset box on their annual first-class flights to the ski lodge in Chamonix. Party founder Robert Menzies identified his true constituents in his Forgotten People speech in 1942. They are the people whose small businesses and community spirit are the true backbone of Australia. The most successful Liberal Prime Minister since then, John Howard, was socially, economically and indeed spiritually aligned with this massive demographic. They were his battlers. Tony Abbott was cut from the same cloth and might have gone on to achieve the same as Howard if Malcolm Turnbull, the, the Prince of Point Piper, hadn't cut his grass. Scott Morrison had a certain suburban authenticity but lacked the political convictions that go with them. Whether Peter Dutton can persuasively position himself among the battlers is yet to be seen, but he won't lead the party to victory if he doesn't. The left side of politics brands itself as inclusive, but it's anything but. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said in 2012, quote, I fight Tories. That's what I do. Yeah, well, I drink red wine and go surfing whenever I can, mate, so what's your point? The Tories' elbow was referring to, and against whom his animosity seems to have only slightly diminished, are not really Tories, whatever they are, but fellow Australians. Many of them would have been the taxpayers who, who funded the social housing in which he so proudly grew up with his struggling single mum. It's a sad truth that whenever Albo mentions his humble beginnings, it's always in the context of the underdog defying low expectations, which is true, but never with gratitude for those whose hard work 
paid for the social housing that saved him from growing up literally on the streets instead. I mean, some of these taxpayers might have been Tories for goodness sake. That this sense of victimhood exists at all in a prosperous country like Australia might be dispiriting, but the, but the source of it is so distant from the otherwise happy nation that Albo leads that it's down, downright hilarious. The creator of the post-industrial victimhood that Albo perpetuates is none other than a rambling German philosopher from London in the 19th century called Karl Marx. Marx manipulated observations of the conditions in early industrialized Britain to create the false idea that capitalism was based on the ruthless exploitation of workers. In his best-selling book, Intellectuals, British writer Paul Johnson says Marx used the conditions observed in pre-industrial businesses, like pottery, dressmaking, blacksmiths, baking and lace manufacturing, as proof of a new class of victim, the worker. In truth, he was writing about these occupations a full 20 years after they had been replaced by steel factories, machine manufacturers and coal mines as the main source of employment. It was at this moment that the myth of the exploited worker took hold, and it continues today. Johnson writes, quote, from the very dawn of the Industrial Revolution, the most efficient manufacturers who had ample access to capital habitually favoured better conditions for their workforce. Conditions improved, and because conditions improved, the workers failed to rise as Marx predicted they would, unquote. They still haven't. But that doesn't stop people like Albo and the modern union movement hoping they will. ACTU President Sally McManus said in 2018 that the benefits of Australian work that Australian workers enjoy today were won by, quote, our parents, grandparents and great-grandparents taking non-violent so-called illegal industrial action, unquote. Actually, they were won mostly by bosses understanding that a business with unhappy employees is not as profitable as it could be. Prosperity is won from collaboration, not the antagonism, victimhood and militancy that so many people on the left subscribe to, along with their sexual preferences and immutable ethnicity. Ordinary Australians can see through this even without knowing the history behind it because it's just common sense. And if Menzies' forgotten people identify with anything, it's common sense. So Coles has decided to put an acknowledgement of country on its receipts. Yep, that's right. Every time you go to the supermarket to buy your groceries at Coles, you'll now be forced to swallow the shallow, blacktivist rubbish that Indigenous leaders, including Senator Jacinta Price, say is nothing but vacuous virtue signalling. Their woke new receipt reads, quote, Coles Group acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia. We recognise their strength and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Coles Group extends that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people 
and recognises their rich cultures and continuing connection to land and waters." Unquote. In response, Warren Jerry elder Ian Hunter told the Herald Sun, the Coles receipt message was unnecessary. Quote, for it to have more meaning, it would be better for Coles to localise the message on receipts for specific areas. For example, Coles in Darabin could acknowledge, uh, acknowledge the Wawarung people, unquote, he told the newspaper. Quote, the acknowledgement of country shouldn't be taken lightly. I'm getting fed up with this. It's a real overreach, unquote. Coles, of course, leapt to its own defence. In a statement, it said, quote, Coles Group is proud to include an acknowledgement of country on our receipts. We work hard to create opportunities for Indigenous peoples, organisations, communities and customers to engage with our business and continue to increase understanding, value and recognition of, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures, histories, knowledge and rights." Unquote. Work hard? How can 50 words on a supermarket receipt create opportunities for Indigenous people? Does Coles really think Aborigines will look at this receipt and feel included and respected? Why not just give all Aboriginal people a discount on all goods? Wouldn't that help the thousands of Aboriginal Australians who are living below the poverty line? Or how about when cashiers get on the supermarket PA system for a price check? Will Paran Coles have to give a long-winded welcome to country before double-checking how much a Beyond Meat plant-based sweet Italian sausage costs? What does any of this achieve? It's utterly meaningless. These companies can't be bothered actually doing anything to help remote Aboriginal communities. That would require time, money and effort. Forget the remote communities that don't have dr clean drinking water. Who cares about the remote areas that are strained by chronic domestic violence, substance abuse and unemployment on a daily basis? In corporate Australia, all you have to do is put up a rainbow flag a few times a year, give a welcome to country, buy some carbon credits and celebrate International Women's Day with a boozy lunch. Then you can get away with price gouging, declining quality and ruthless cost cutting, and it won't cost you a cent. Now, in a minute, I'm going to interview Matt Canavan, the LNP Senator for Queensland, who I've been wanting to interview all week because his speciality is the energy sector and the government's energy policy went from vaguely bonkers to terrifyingly suicidal this week. We spent the first part of the week trying to make sense of it and would have continued to do so if the raid on Donald Trump's house in Florida hadn't distracted us. But we can't avoid this stuff. It affects everyone, albeit in different ways. If you're a billionaire like Simon Holmes at court, who helped finance the campaigns of a group of new MPs elected to Parliament in May, and who all share the same delusion that if we don't transition to so-called clean energy in the next few years, life on Earth will simply cease to exist, then you stand to profit handsomely. Holmes Accord has a range of companies that are poised to dive into the decarbonising and renewable sectors. These new industries are almost always propped up by subsidies. Without the subsidies, the market simply wouldn't sustain them because they are expensive and unreliable. So with a gaggle of new environmental MPs on the crossbench supporting their unproven and frankly unconvincing plans to transform our economy, people like Homes of Court stand to cash in. 
But if you're a worker in a factory that needs cheap, reliable energy, or say a baker who relies on regular power to keep the ovens going, then you're going to be out of a job or forced out of business, most likely. The government is promising thousands of new jobs in so-called clean industries, but we're really told what these jobs are, let alone why this needs to happen in the first place. What if people like the jobs they have? What if they don't want to retrain to work in a new industry? And what are these new jobs? Last week, Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen said the hundreds of windmills he plans to build off Australian urban beaches will create lots of jobs because they require lots of maintenance. Well, I'm no accountant, but doesn't that increase the cost of producing the energy? Wouldn't it be more economical to build something that requires little maintenance and will operate reliably for decades like, I don't know, a nuclear power plant? One other job that Bowen and his kind never admit they are creating is for bulldozer drivers to bury all this renewable rubbish into landfill. Environmentalists get cranky when we don't sort our rubbish into the various bins for recycling, but their giant windmills and solar panels are all destined for landfill in 20 years because they can't be recycled. Let's bring in Matt Canavan to either make sense of all this or simply share our utter bewilderment. Matt, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Fred. Matt, firstly, I'm not sure if you noticed the expression on Anthony Albanese's face when he announced last week that he'd negotiated with the Greens leader, Adam Bant, to waive the climate change bill through Parliament. This should have been one of the defining moments of his career. But instead, he looked to me like he was recording a hostage video. What do you think was really going on? And is the passage of the climate change bill as certain as Albo would like us to think it is? Yes, uh, Freddie, him and he looked about as convincing as uh, Johnny Depp selling the merits of Australia's biosecurity regime, if you remember that a few years ago after he brought those dogs in. And uh, uh, Albo didn't really seem all that passionate about his scheme. I mean, perhaps, perhaps Fred, he has realised what anybody who's just read the 20-odd page bill understands is that this doesn't really do anything. I mean, even, even uh, Chris Bowen and the government themselves said this bill was not needed. They didn't need to pass this legislation. They could impose or uh, uh, put these job cuts and emissions cuts through the Australian economy without the legislation. And so you've got to wonder why in the government's first two weeks after an election, uh, with all the challenges we face with inflation, with interest rates going up, with the uh, tensions in the Taiwan Straits, with all those issues, why are we devoting all the Parliament's time to a totally pointless bill? This bill doesn't really do anything. All it does is enshrine the, the uh, targets that the Australian government uh, sets under the Paris Agreement. That's it. So if a different government came in, they would have to change this legislation to change those targets. But of course, under the Paris Agreement, there's no penalties. doesn't matter. If you don't meet what you've said you're going to meet under the Paris Agreement, nothing happens. And we can clearly see that right now as the German Green government builds coal-fired, well, reopens coal-fired power stations. And there's, where's, where's the UN? Where's the IPCC calling them out on this? They've got no, no claws. There's no teeth uh, to this particular uh, dog. Well, there's a, there's a bit of a trick embedded in this legislation too, because both Labor and the Greens have insisted that the 43% is just the starting point, that the government can, if it feels like it, increase the target. This sounds a bit suspicious because 43% sounds to me like a figure that was carefully arrived at as a result of, like, you know, detailed calculations. Or was 43% just plucked out of thin air? And what will the figure be next? 
Well, it, it, it's, it's, it, it was uh, probably a little bit more uh, uh, negotiation than just being plucked out of thin air. What effectively happened, Fred, if you remember, is that the last election, the 2019 election, the Labor Party took a 40% cut to the election. There were a number of people in the Labor Party uh, calling for a 45% reduction this time round. And so they kind of split the difference, rode up in, uh, rounded up in favour of the Greens and went with 43. That's, <laughs> that's how this number came about. Uh, uh, so it's not based on the science, it is based on the political science of negotiations between the left and right factions of the Australian Labor Party. Uh, so, so that's the number. And yes, you're right, the, the legislation says that future governments, future ministers uh, for climate change can increase this number, can increase the uh, target we have under the Paris Agreement. But I keep coming back to the fact this, all this stuff, as I said uh, a few months ago, uh, uh, quite infamously, uh, net zero is dead. All of this stuff is over. I mean, uh, Europe is reopening coal-fired power plants. Uh, the Biden administration is running around the world to Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, every the dictatorship they can find to uh, beg them to produce uh, more oil. And, of course, China and India are just going along their merry way and continuing to build coal-fired power stations and expand the domestic coal mining. Uh, no other country is taking this seriously. So why would we handicap and hinder our own industry uh, completely pointlessly... Uh, by pursuing these radical cuts to emissions when no other countries are, because it doesn't matter what we do, we could shut down all Australian industry tomorrow, it would not change the temperature one jot. All it would do would cause a lot of economic pain for Australians. Well, the other interesting thing, Matt, is that they're claiming a mandate for this, even though they won only 32% of the primary vote. Mm. And worse, though, they didn't really fully explain these policies before the election. So it's had to hit the ground running with ways to reach these targets. And the first cab off the rank was Chris Bowen announcing hundreds of windmills off Australian beaches, some of them adjacent to, adjacent to urban areas. Matt, you might recall that Asset Energy's application to renew its licence to explore for gas off the coast between Sydney and Newcastle was rejected this year, partly because many coastal residents thought the gas well would be an eyesore. Now, Matt, how are, those, how are those residents going to respond to 200 windmills being install, installed just off the beach? Well, I don't know, Fred. I'm sure some of them would potentially welcome this, perhaps, till they find out how many uh, uh, have to go in there. Uh, look, I'm not against industrial development. I'm not against renewable energy. Uh, we can and should install some components of, of uh, renewable energy. It has a role in our system. But there isn't such a thing as too much of a good thing. And... Right now, our energy system has too much power that's weather dependent, that relies on the weather. And now when there's a, obviously every day, there's a night, there's a thing called night, uh, which does shock some, some energy, so-called energy experts, but the sun goes down every day. And then if it's not very windy at night, we've got real troubles. We've got real troubles keeping our lights on. Uh, it's gonna get worse before it gets better because more coal-fired power stations are due to shut in the next few years. So we've got to have less power that's dependent on the weather and more power that is available 24-7. As I've said before, uh, renewable energy, is the, they're the dull bludgers of our energy system. They only turn up to work when they want to. Uh, they, they don't work full-time. Uh, and we need full-time power to bring back Australian manufacturing, to make sure we can keep power prices down for Australians, especially as their living costs rise. And renewable energy is just not cutting it. Uh, we've got to have a mix of different technologies. So this pursuit of offshore wind is an obsession of the Labor-Green alliance uh, that is only going to continue to damage our competitiveness unless we see sense soon. 
Well, Matt, speaking of bludgers, I, I looked at uh, I, the, the Sydney Morning Herald has run a report on this very topic. And I looked at it online a minute ago. I couldn't help noticing that all the comments underneath were essentially pretty positive, you know, saying that these are, these are symbols of us looking after the environment for future generations and so on and so on. What nobody mentioned in those comments, nobody mentioned in the story, and certainly Chris Bowen didn't mention, is how much they're going to be subsidised by. Now, you know, you say they're bludgers, mm. uh, doll bludgers. I mean, how much doll are we going to pay these windmills, mate? Do you know? Well, it's, it's very opaque now. It's hard to work out uh, exactly uh, how much assistance comes from governments to these sort of projects these days. The former coalition government, Liberal National Government, uh, we did end what was uh, known as the renewable energy target. Uh, that finished in 2020. So there are no direct subsidies from the federal government or no standing subsidies. They can apply for grants, these projects, and uh, different uh, uh, concessional loans from the federal government. That, that's transparent, although we don't know yet with these projects, but they'll get that. But what is, what is hard to work out is the contracts that state governments uh, uh, are signing with renewable energy projects. Uh, all state governments have programs that do this these days. And, and they, they, we, get, we get told we're not allowed to see the details of those because they're commercial and confidence and they have to negotiate more. So you actually don't really know how much you're paying. It will turn up on your bill and you can see your bills going up. Part of those increases is because we've got to back these, uh, these investors, uh, often from overseas, often from China, or a lot of renewable energy companies. We've got to pay them uh, through our electricity bills uh, for these investments. It is a complete and utter scam. And in terms of those comments on the Sydney Morning Herald, it, it does beg a belief. As I said, I'm not against industrial development. But these, these offshore wind turbines will have an impact on the environment. They, for the people that so-called care about the environment, the problem, one of the big problems with renew renewable energy is it takes, uh, wind turbines take about 400 times more land than a nuclear energy station uh, to be homed on. So that drilling, uh, all of that, uh, that, that pounding in the ocean that has to go on to build these offshore wind turbines, that can impact marine life. We actually don't really know the impacts of that yet. And we've we got to still try and minimise our footprint on this planet. I'm all for that. I, as I say, I want to see our country develop, but we shouldn't just devastate our environment in some obsession, obsessionable pursuit to lower our emissions while the rest of the world's not doing that. Well, Matt, we've seen how the Australian public responds to this kind of stuff. Tony Abbott won in a landslide in 2013 for banning the carbon tax. Bill Shorten lost the unlosable in 2019 because he couldn't explain how much his renewables policy would cost. And Scott Morrison terminated the coalition's decade in power by, almost, by also signing up to this focus group driven folly. If history is any guide, Matt, this Labor government could easily be a one term wonder. Now, I know it's early days, but is there a feeling in the party room already that Albo has committed the nation to such self-destructive targets that the coalition might have a chance at the next uh, election? Look, I, I think it is too early, and, and I suppose uh, some of your equation, uh, some of your implicit predictions there is up to us. Uh, uh, I certainly think the policy platform of the Australian Labor Party gives us the opportunity. Uh, they are signing up to increasing our power prices, uh, sending manufacturing jobs overseas, and overall making our country much weaker to face the challenges of a rising and aggressive China in our region. Uh, so if we have a platform that stands apart from that, 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 that shows an alternative, uh, that lower, lowers power prices, that promotes and supports the industrial development of our nation, our defence requirements, yeah, I think we can win in one term. But if we echo the Labor Party and mimic what they're doing uh, in a uh, sort of with a blue tinge 
or a blue and green tinge, pale green tinge, in my case, the Nationals Party, well, we're not going to win because there won't be an alternative. People will go for the real thing. So hopefully we'll rediscover our principles and values, which should be in favour of government getting out of your lives. Uh, the whole pursuit of net zero is the massive expansion of the state's power. You cannot have these net zero goals uh, pr properly implemented without the massive expansion of the state's control over your farms, over your factory, over your businesses. And that should be anathema to anybody in the Liberal or National Parties, in my view, because I joined this, this cause and I fight for this cause because I don't think the government's the solution to all of your problems. Spoken like a true disciple of Robert Menzies, Matt. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for your time. No worries, Ray. Have a good one, mate. Thanks. That's Matt Canavan, who is as amused and alarmed as we are by the standard of debate and policy in Australia these days. Now, you can probably recall the euphoria that erupted when Joe Biden won the 2020 United States presidential election. Impromptu street parties broke out in places like New York and Los Angeles, and leftists around the world celebrated that the Oval Office would no longer be occupied by a gauche outsider and former reality TV reality star like Donald Trump. With the evil orange man vanquished, some politicians were finally able to say what they really thought of him. In a book published last year, senior Labor MP Chris Bowen said Trump was a charlatan and, quote, the worst president in the United States history. He went on, quote, the people of the United States have given us some hope that the charlatans can be defeated and some pointers as to how to do so, unquote. A little over a year later, those pointers about how to do so are clearer than ever. The threat posed by COVID was exaggerated into something that only an interventionist big government could solve. Big tech censored anything related to Joe Biden's corrupt family. Lies about Trump's foreign collusion were perpetuated and the candidate they put up as the alternative to Trump was a doddery old bloke who'd hardly offended anyone after 40 years in Washington because he hadn't done anything and is now sitting on the lowest approval ratings in history. Who's the charlatan now, Chris? Since writing that book, Bowen's party has been swept into office in the May federal election. And Bowen himself has been given the Ministry of Climate Change and Energy. My next guest, Nick Cater, has written a splendid piece in Today's Australian about Bowen's energy transfer transformation roadmap. It includes a plan to reduce household power bills by $275, um, hang on a sec, no, he's not gonna do that anymore. So Bowen is gonna turn Australia into a renewable energy superpower that overtakes emerging coal-fired powerhouses like China and India using windmills and dusty solar panels across the desert. No, actually, he's not gonna do that either, is he? Um, okay, well, at least his shutting down of Australian industries is going to reduce the number of extreme weather uh, actually, no. What is Bowen hoping to achieve? Let's bring on Nick Cater for some answers. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks, Fred. Great to be here again. Now, for people who missed it last week, Nick presents his own show at 8pm on Fridays, right here on ADH, which we will talk about in a minute. But first, Nick, you've crunched the numbers in Bowen's transition to lower emissions and higher renewables. How do these figures stack up? 
Yeah, not, not just me, Fred. I don't, don't want people to think that I just did this, you know, in my own spare time. This is the Australian energy market operator, right? They are the mob who are supposed to keep the electricity flowing to our homes. And they say, and this is based on Labor's 43% target, that we are going to have to triple the amount of wind and solar farms that we have right now by 2030. Somehow we've got to plan them, put them in place, have them up and running by 2030. Uh, we, we're, going, we're going to have to uh, cut the amount of coal out of the system by 60%. So 60% of the coal generation that's currently in operation is going to have to disappear by 2030. They're going to have to triple the amount of rooftop solar and uh, they're going to have to increase the amount of storage, batteries presumably, because they don't have any other ideas, by seven times, right? All this in the space of eight years. But wait, that's only just beginning because you've only got to 2030, then he wants to get to zero 2050 without the benefit of nuclear or anything else. He's not counting any, he hates nuclear, he says it's too expensive. So instead, they're going to have to increase in all wind and solar farms by nine times by 2050. And, and you can imagine what that's going to do to the landscape. I mean, we did the calculation. If you were going to do all that just with solar, so you do what you're going to do is put solar panels in, you'd have to have a solar farm twice the size of Canberra to do that. Uh, but that's what the numbers say. You know, if, uh, if you're not going to do it by more sensible means, that's where you end up. <laughs> How does coal fit into that? You said 60% reduction of coal-fired power stations. Yeah. Any, any particular ones? Well, you, could, you can go through the list and work, work out which are, are due to come off the grid more quickly because they're reaching the end of their lives, but all those are going to be accelerated. And, and we also know that the energy companies are very clever at, at, at uh, cutting their losses by you know, closing a coal-fired power station if it means the price of gas goes up or whatever. So, yeah, 60% of that will go by, by 2030. All of it will go by 2043. So just over 20 years, no coal, uh, which is fine if you've got some idea of what you're going to put in, because coal produces, what, m most of our electricity by now, by far the largest amount. And certainly, you know, the times of day when the sun unfortunately stops shining and there may not be as much wind around as we like, then you're using coal pretty much. That's all you're using over the whole country. Uh, and yet... There's nothing in Boeing's plan that I can see to make up that gap apart from more and more renewables and a lot of renewables. I think people are going to be sick of renewables by the time <laughs> this man finishes. It's a renewable policy, if nothing else. Yeah. Nick, um, your own organisation, the Menzies Research Centre, published costings of Labor's previous policy on this topic in 2019, which found the policy would cost the nation almost half a trillion dollars and 167,000 jobs by 2030. Those figures, when they were published, arguably cost Labor, under Bill Shorten, the election. It looks like Labor cut you off at the past this time because it's released its own modelling and found its emissions reduction plan would actually create 604,000 new jobs and increase GDP by a third. Nick, which figures can we believe? I think you believe Dr. Brian Fisher's figures. I mean, he's, he's the, the best uh, climate economist in Australia, possibly the world, that we, we commissioned to do this work. And uh, you've, yeah, I think you've had a look at, at, at Chris Bowen's modelling and how, how flimsy it is, where these magic 600 jobs come from. But the other thing in that modelling that they predict and they promised us before the election 
It's all in the modelling, they said. Electricity bills will fall by an average of $275 per household per year in our first term of government. And they promised that on at least 15 occasions that I've counted up. Since the election, no, not promised it again, despite plenty of invitations from Peter Dutton and his team to repeat that figure in question time. They've dodged it, which makes me think that they realise, like the rest of us, it's bunkum. It's not going to happen. In fact, we'd be lucky if we get away with electricity prices going up by a mere $275, let alone coming down. So if that's the same modelling on which they've based this you know, great gushing load of jobs that are going to come as a result of 43% reduction. I think we've got, we're entitled to be a little skeptical and ask them to go back to the modelers and say, are you sure? <laughs> well, now, of course, there is an alternative that's well tested and, and used around the world, which is nuclear. Nick, what's the latest technology with nuclear and how will it work in Australia? Well, let's hope it works in Australia. Small modular reactors. They're, they're, they're very small units. They can be just the size of a shipping container, but to put them in place, you know, you need a, you know, a, a dozen hectares or a little more will we'll put you in place. A small modular reactor that will produce about 900 megawatts of electricity. And just to give you a comparison, they're planning a, a, a solar farm near, near Goulburn right now, and it's six square kilometres and that's going to produce just 400 megawatts. So, you know, these are much more efficient. And uh, what, what we don't know yet, we've got to look at the costing because we don't know fully the costing. But on everything I've seen, they look like they'd be very, very competitive at least with, uh, with solar and, 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 and wind with the added advantage that they run 24 hours a day and the, and the other added advantage, they're not despoiling the countryside. You know, this, it, it turns out that nuclear is the best option for the environment, which will uh, puzzle a lot of greenies, I suspect. Nick, I can't help noticing that whenever you address this topic on the pages of The Australian, it generates reams of comments and nearly all of them positive. Mm. Is it mm. true that the majority of ordinary Australians know what Chris Bowen doesn't know, that renewables are both unnecessary and impractical? Well, if, if you read The Australian, then it, it singles you out as a particularly sort of sensible person in the first place. So I always, I always look at it through that lens. But I, I think certainly that the, 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 the scepticism about what, what Labor have put forward is there. Uh, you know, people sort of they like the idea of, of clean, clean, clean green energy. I mean, it sounds nice, but uh, they're not, we just haven't been told. Like so much that's come out of the Albanese government, we want more detail. And in the absence of that detail, you know, their, their plans just don't look credible. I think you, 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 you detect it through, through, through your mailbag, Fred. There's a, there is a great number of people out there. Uh, and, and often very qualified people will write to me, you know, people with, with serious engineering or science backgrounds will write in saying, well, you're on the right track there, Nick. Uh, and this, this, I think, is, uh, is encouraging. I think that, that people are receptive to a, a more fact-based uh, discussion around, of, uh, a less dumbed-down discussion around climate ch change and energy policy. Well, speaking of dumbing down, let's talk about New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> Our good friends across the Tasman. You're, you have Oliver Hartwich of the New Zealand Initiative on tomorrow night. Oliver is the man who has been warning quite, quite consistently that New Zealand is in danger of becoming a failed state. Mm. How bad does he think things will get in New Zealand? 
Well, he, Oliver, to put this in context, Oliver went there 10 years ago and he was surprised by how well New Zealand was running under the National Party government of uh, John Key and, and Bill English and uh, wrote, a, wrote a monograph for us actually about how, what we could learn from New Zealand. But since Ardern has been in place, particularly uh, since, uh, since uh, uh, COVID, uh, she, she's just gone just got crackers. And, and she's, she's had all these great promises about housing. They were going to create 100,000 affordable homes. I think at the last count, they've created 6,000. When it comes to practical policy outcomes, it seems they can do absolutely nothing. What they've spent a lot of time doing, though, and very successfully is driving that woke agenda uh, on, on things like Maori rights, and, uh, and uh, you know, the half, half of the, as I pointed out to Oliver, I struggle to read New Zealand government documents nowadays because they're peppered with Maori words that, you know, what does it mean? The transformation has been incredible. Uh, and Oliver speaks about this in the interview. And interestingly, Fred, um, if past experience is anything to go by, I think the majority of people who watch that interview tomorrow will be in New Zealand because their media over there is just so poor, it's so uniformly, you know, woke and just want, want, telling one tune and only one tune, that they are turning to Australian media and media from the, around the world to, to find out what's happening in their own country. And, and Oliver, who comes from Germany, says this reminds him of the Cold War, when the East Germans used to adjust their aerials to tune into West German TV to see what was happening. Well, that's what's happening in New Zealand. All their aerials will be tuned towards the ADH transmitter here in Australia. Of course, it's not like that. Of course, it's all online to, to watch this because it's the sort of information that they can't get through their own media, which is a tragedy. Well, you've been to New Zealand a few times. Uh, are Kiwis that left-leaning? Isn't there a market for a straight-talking newspaper over there? Well, you'd think so. I mean, take the last election, right? It, you know, although Ardern won, it, it was about a 50-50 proposition. You know, they have this strange voting system that nobody on earth understands. But, you know, but you still get, you know, basically 50% of people vote for parties of the centre-right loosely and 50% and the centre and the centre-left. So you'd think that, you know, if there's four national newspapers in, 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 the, in, the, in the country, it might be profitable for two of them to support the nationals. But no, all four support Ardern. It's and just on market terms, let alone political balance, I don't see how that works. Are, are they all just, just wanting, you know, go woke, go broke very quickly? <laughs> Is that all the four idea? Of them, all four of them at the same time. Now, quickly, quickly, Nick, just before you go, I just want to talk about one other global issue, uh, which is called the cost of living, or as I like to call it, inflation. We saw it in the US this week. Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act. They even gave themselves a round of applause when Kamala Harris cast the deciding vote to get it through. It seems like, it seems like inflation is easy to cause. Government simply prints money, but then it's very difficult to solve. Now, Nick, how powerful are governments in being able to stop inflation and should the viewers be worried about what's about to happen? Well, there's a lot they can do to... Well, put it another way, Fred, I think there's very little they can do to stop inflation once it's started, but they can make it a, a whole lot worse by pumping more money into the economy, by through government spending, through... Uh, you know, pushing wages up. This is what's happening in this country, by the way, and it's what's happening big time in New Zealand. But this idea that this is, in America, that this is a Putin has caused all this inflation is just bunkum. As Milton Friedman said, you know, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary problem. And, it, and he says in an in a extract that I'll play on my show tonight, on tomorrow night, 
Inflation always starts in Washington with the printing of money. And here it always starts in Canberra with the collusion of people in Sydney who work for the Reserve Bank. Well said. Well said. Nick Cater, thanks for your time. Thank you, Fred. That's Nick Cater of the Menzies Research Centre and host of Nick Cater's Battleground, 8pm every Friday, right here on ADH. And just to wrap up, if you're wondering what they get up to at the New South Wales Parliament House in Macquarie Street, the Liberal State Member for North Shore, Felicity Wilson, has enlightened us. What did I just watch? The New South Wales Liberals are staring at electoral defeat come March, and here is one of their members making TikToks. I would have thought that with the seat of North Shore sitting smack bang in teal country, Felicity Wilson would be working a bit harder than that in her taxpayer-funded office. Is it any wonder why voters are so disillusioned with this New South Wales government? Not only was Matt Keane elected unopposed this week to the deputy leadership, his ideas and policies are destroying a once prosperous state. His first budget as treasurer saw a $27 billion spending spree, with the 23 budget deficit coming in at over $11 billion. This financial year, net government debt in New South Wales will be $78 billion. By the 26th financial year, net government debt in New South Wales is expected to reach $115 billion. A reminder, this is supposed to be a Liberal government. Yeah, right. The reality is that Robert Menzies wouldn't feel at home in the modern-day Liberal Party. As for Felicity Wilson, well, what's there to say? I'm still struggling to move on from that TikTok video. <laughs> She suffered a 10% swing against her in the last 2019 election. Felicity Wilson is on track to be the next Trent Zimmerman. How she entered Parliament in the first place is even more intriguing. As reported in the Sydney Morning Herald in 2017, while on the campaign trail, Ms Wilson posted a selfie with John Howard with the caption, quote, The first vote I ever cast in an election was for John Howard in 2001, when I was a student living in Benelong. He told me this morning he'd return the favour, unquote. But according to electoral roll records, Ms Wilson was not, in fact, eligible to vote for the Prime Minister in 2001. So not only are her TikToks questionable, her memory, her memory is as well. According to this article in the Sydney Morning Herald, records place her on the other side of Sydney at an address in Marrickville in the seat of Grainler. Ms Wilson also retracted a repeated claim made during a closely fought Liberal pre-selection, included on a statutory, statutory declaration and nomination form, that she lived in the Lower North Shore electorate for a decade. The declaration read, quote, I first moved into the North Shore electorate in 2005 and have lived in Waverson, Wollstonecraft and now Neutral Bay for 10 years, unquote. Ms Wilson was not registered to vote within North Shore's boundaries in, in 2005. Early that year and the next, she was on the electoral roll 
at an address in North Epping, Epping, about 30 minutes drive away from Harborside Waverton. At the time this was brought to Ms Wilson's attention, she said in a written statement, quote, at the time of my writing my nomination form, I believed it to be true. However, upon further reflection, I have since realized that that figure is not accurate, unquote. But despite all this, Felicity Wilson still won the plum seat of North Shore. And while she's making further reflections, perhaps she should further reflect on ways to help the coalition win the forthcoming state election instead of posting narcissistic TikToks. Well, that's it from me for this week. Thank you so much for your company. And again, tell your friends to download the ADH TV app on their phones and television where all our rapidly expanding, expanding content is available live and on demand, and it's free. And I'll see you next Monday at nine o'clock. Good night.